let's talk about the story of the Passover where we left off from Exodus 12. Um, you remember that Luke talked to us last week about the, the plagues. And he left off at, at Exodus 11 where darkness has fallen over the land of Egypt, the ninth plague, and yet Pharaoh says, I'm not going to let the people go. Moses says, okay, but there's going to be one last plague. And he tells them about the angel of death, the death angel that's going to come and, and kill the firstborn throughout the land of Egypt. Moses pronounces the last plague, but it's not done yet. That starts and is told about in Exodus 12. Now, maybe we're tempted to think, well, how cruel. God, you're going to go in and kill, people, kill firstborn throughout the land of Egypt? But before you think... Before you look at it that way and blame God for being cruel, think about this. Weren't the Egyptians pretty cruel in taking all the firstborn sons of, each of the Hebrews and killing them and telling the midwives to do so? Wasn't it cruel to throw the babies in the Nile uh, as Pharaoh told them to do when the, a baby boy was born among the Hebrews? Wasn't it pretty cruel to enslave a whole nation of people, work them literally to death, and beat them, and work them all the time with no, uh, no breaks, um, literally destroying them and their life? So in a sense, God is, our God of justice is saying, wait a minute, you're going to do this. What does it feel like for the shoe to be on the other foot? Aren't you reaping what you sow? Well, but how did they get there? How did Israel and Egypt get to this point where they're killing one another, or, or Egypt is killing Israel? You remember, you were here in the study when we went through Genesis. At the end of Genesis, they were working together. Joseph was actually helping the, uh, Hebrew, or the, Israel, the Egyptian people. And uh, he was, Pharaoh brought Joseph's family here, gave them land. They were working together in peace and harmony. So how did we get to this point? How did the culture of Egypt and Israel come to this? Exodus opens with several generations passing, and that Pharaoh died, Joseph died, and a few more generations passed. And then, a new generation arises, a new Pharaoh. And we even get the sense that a new generation of Israelites arose that didn't really know God. Now think about that for a moment. If you don't know God, who is the epitome of good, what's going to happen to your culture? When you take God out of the picture, what you literally or figuratively see is the world going to hell. Fear, racism, selfishness, evil, injustice, slavery, hatred, murder, pain, and suffering. That's the culture of the day when you forget about God. But while even Israel may have forgotten about God, God hasn't forgotten about his covenant with his people. Moses said 
in chapter 11, verse 7, so that you may know, Pharaoh, that there is that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel, his people, those who've entered into a covenant relationship with him, this tenth plague will come and affect you, but will not affect Israel. And so that open, here's where we are. We open up into chapter 12. And it says, this month, the month of Nisan, will be a start of a new year for you. So this event of the death angel and what happens in the exodus out of Egypt, it changes the entire calendar for the Jewish people. And God says this month, the month of Nisan, or later it's called Abib, it's, like, it's the month of springtime is what it means. It's going to be a new start for you. And isn't that what springtime's about? The death of winter, that where plants die and go into hibernation, and then life springs forth again? Well, this is going to be a new start for you, Israel. And Moses says, tell all the congregation of Israel to take a lamb, one lamb that is perfect and unblemished. On the 10th of the month, you take it in to you and observe it for the next several days. And on the 14th day of the month, then you are to kill the lamb. You're to take some hyssop, which almost served as a little bush that served like a paintbrush, and dip it into the lamb, the blood's lamb, or the lamb's blood that was shed. And then take that blood and paint it on the doorposts and over the lintel, over the top of the doorpost. And God says, this is going to be a sign for you. This is going to be a sign for you, but when I see the blood, I will not strike those of that house. I will only strike the firstborn of the land of Egypt. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute my judgment, for I am the Lord. But the blood will be a sign for you, and where you are, I will pass over you so that no harm will befall you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day will be a memorial for you. Remember that word. This day will be a memorial for you. You will keep it as a feast to the Lord through all your generations as a statute or ordinance or law forever. And for seven days, you're going to eat unleavened bread. So then Moses calls the elders of Israel and he says to them, So go and select a lamb for yourselves according to your family and kill the Passover lamb. Put the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel so that the Lord will pass over you and he will not allow the destroyer to enter your house and strike you. You're to do this right, this ritual. Remember that a rite and a ritual, as a yearly observance for you and your children forever, or as they say on Shark Tank, in perpetuity, ongoing, time after time. Even when you're in the promised land, which the Lord shall give you, you are to keep this service. And when your children say to you, what does this observance of this service mean? You will say, it's a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over our houses, the houses of Israel in Egypt, and struck down the Egyptians 
but he spared our families. And the people bowed themselves low and worshiped God. But it also says, and they went and did as the Lord commanded. Now at midnight, the Lord struck down both of men and of beast, even from Pharaoh's house to the young child or the young slave girl. Every house of Egypt was affected and they lost their firstborn. You remember what happened when it said God heard the cries of his people who were suffering and losing their children and suffering under the hand of Pharaoh. And now it says, and there was a great cry of suffering throughout the land of Egypt. There's a justice, a reciprocity going on here. Pharaoh then calls for Moses and Aaron and he says, please get out of here and take your women and your children. Take your flocks. I don't care. Just get out of here. And you leaving, it will bless us too. It will bless me too. The Egyptians were urgent. All the people of Egypt said, yes, please get out of here. Don't delay or we shall all be dead. And so Israel left quickly. They didn't even have time for their bread to rise. I remember my grandmother and mother making bread. You know what they do? They put a little yeast into the bread at night. And then the next morning, the bread rises. That yeast produces carbon dioxide and causes the bread to rise. That's the little holes you see in your, in your wonder bread at home. Well, there's no yeast in this bread. They don't have time for their bread to rise. They've got to leave suddenly and quickly. So they leave, and they're going to be eating unleavened bread for the next few days. And they rush out of the land. But before they do, and the people are coming to them and saying, Get out of here! Get out of here quickly! The children of Israel are saying, Well, wait a minute. We're leaving our homes. We're going to need something. You know, how can we survive on the journey? Why don't you give us something for our homes and for the fact that we've got to leave? And it said, Whatever you want, just take it. Get out of here. And it says they plundered the Egyptians. They gave them gold. They gave them silver. They gave them clothing for the journey. And so they did. They left. Now, think about that for a minute. They're slaves. It's almost as if God's saying, here's your back pay for all that slavery, that all that labor you gave. And they are able to go out with gold and silver and new clothes. They gave them whatever they asked for. And so the people of Israel went out, about 600,000 men, not counting women and children, left Egypt with their flocks and their herds. If it was 600,000 men and the same number of women and children, that'd be almost a million and a half to two million people left Egypt. That would be almost like the whole city of Dallas and Irving leaving Texas, the land, if you called it the land of Egypt, going across to the Red River, I mean the Red Sea, and crossing into the promised land of Oklahoma. Oh, well, okay, sorry. Uh, it fits the weekend, doesn't it? But it would be about like that. that number. Can you amass a mass exodus of that number of people? The first thing that they do, they said they went to Sukkoth. Now, you know what was at Sukkoth? From Ramses to Sukkoth? It was a bunch of salt mines and copper mines. 
And one archaeologist said they were probably sent there to pick up some of the other slaves that were uh, destined to work in the mines for Pharaoh. They didn't even leave their brothers behind in the mine. They picked them up and maybe took them with them. Well, anyway, on the journey, it says they baked cakes of unleavened bread out of their dough as their food provisions. And it says the people had been in Egypt for 430 years to the day. Now, I don't know exactly why, why that number is important, but it sounds the way it's relayed that it was pretty significant. Maybe you can think about that and let me know. Why was it that God said they were in Egypt for 430 years to the very day? But they did. They left. And it says in Exodus 12 and verse 42, It was a memorable night to behold, where the Lord watched over the people of Israel. And Israel observed this night, kept for the Lord throughout all their generations. Forever. Did you know that even to this very day, if someone will join themselves to the Jewish people, they must be circumcised as a sign of the covenant, that they're one of the covenant people that God established with Abraham, and they will eat this Passover meal as a day of remembrance to remember their salvation, how God brought them out and gave them deliverance with a very strong and powerful hand. Well, Exodus 13 says, Every year in the month of Nisan or Abib, the springtime, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is, is eaten for seven days, culminating in the great Passover feast where they eat lamb. Exodus 13 and verse 8 says, A big part of the feast is the Haggadah, which means proclaiming the story. And even today in the Seder, which means the order of things done at the Passover feast that the Jews celebrate, they have a tradition where the youngest child comes to the patriarch of the family who's presiding over the meal, and they say, Daddy, what makes this meal special? What makes this different from all the other meals that we normally eat? And then the patriarch tells the story, the Haggadah. He proclaims to them how God passed over their families and did them no harm, but brought them out of the land of Egypt by a strong and a powerful hand. And it says, so that it will be a sign for you, a memorial, a ritual, something that you'll even write down on your hand, something that will be always before your eyes, so that the law of the Lord will be in your mouth. You see, he's describing an object lesson. The Passover meal was an object lesson. You saw it. You, you smelled it. They roasted the lamb with fire. Have you ever been around a tailgate party where grills are all burning and you smell the smell of roasted meat? I mean, you can tell when you walk in the neighborhood, somebody's barbecuing you. Mmm, I smell that. That's what they're... I mean, everybody's roasting a lamb with fire. And... Uh, they're, they're eating unleavened bread. Why? Because it reminds them that they had to leave so quickly. Um, their bitter herbs reminded them that it was hard, bitter labor that they had to endure in Egypt. But God brought them out with the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. He says, when you come into the land which the Lord shall give you, 
All the firstborn of the flocks, even the firstborns of your son, will be consecrated. That means set apart for me, for the Lord. Now of the flocks, he said, they will be sacrificed. That's a measure of trust, isn't it? You know, if you have a small flock and you have to sacrifice the firstborn of the flock, the lamb, then it's a way of saying, God, I trust you. You told me to do this. I trust you that you're going to keep producing. They also, at the springtime of the first harvest, the first fruits went to God. It was set apart for him. Why? Well, it was a trust that, God, you gave us the early fruit. You're going to keep producing, and I trust that you'll be in that too. Also, we consecrate or set apart our children. Our firstborn son was consecrated to the Lord. What does that mean? Well, God says, you don't sacrifice him. I don't believe in that. I don't want that. But you take a lamb, because he's trying to show them what a substitutionary sacrifice is. He says, you redeem your firstborn son by sacrificing a lamb from the flock. And it will remind you how I redeemed you out of Israel too. And you will learn about the redemption of God from one substitutionary sacrifice so that your son or you do not have to be killed. So um, Exodus 13 and verse 7 says, So when Pharaoh let them go, God led them around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. He did not lead them by the Mediterranean Sea towards where the Philistines were because God was concerned that they would see this giant nation of warring people, the Philistines, that we'll learn about later in the history of Israel, and they would see that warring people and be discouraged. So God said, no, I don't want them to see that yet. They're not ready for that. Let's lead them a different way. And he led them by the way of the Red Sea. God didn't want them discouraged. And then in Exodus 13 and 21, God, it says, God led them by a pillar of the cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and God did not depart from them but he went before them leading every step of the way okay well that's the story of the Passover what about the application to our lives you know Exodus is a story about God and his relationship to his people but primarily about God. So what do we learn about God from this story? We learn, I think, that God is a God of justice. You know, when you're wronged, don't you want justice? I mean, we have legal systems in this country with which, yes, they're imperfect, but at least there's something. They're imperfect systems, but at least there's some sense of justice. And when you're wronged, you want justice. God is a God of justice, too. And I think that's why we see justice brought before Pharaoh. He says, well, you want to see what you're doing to other people? See how you like it yourself. Justice is a good thing. But you know, God is also a God of, of compassion. He's a God of love, a God of concern, and a God of mercy. He saw the Israelites suffering. He heard their cries. And he said, I am indeed concerned about what has been done to you. 
in Exodus 3 and verse 16. Jimmy Cutter asked me a, a very pertinent question once that's always stuck with me. He said, God is a God of mercy. He's also a God of justice. When does God exert mercy on you or justice on you? And I've thought about that a lot, and I think the answer lies in God does what is most needful for us to bring us to the best place. He's trying to produce in us the kind of people that we ought to be. And I realized that when my children went away to college, and maybe they did some things that I didn't approve of, you know, sometimes I would say, listen, you know, if this keeps happening, you're going to have to leave college and come back home. That was, that was strict judgment. But sometimes, you know, it's better to extend mercy. When do you make the choice? You as a parent decide what is best for those children to, to bring them to the best place in life. You want that. So God is a God of justice, but he's also a God of mercy who loves you and wants you to be the best person you can be. We also learn that God is a powerful God. He's known by Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as El Shaddai, the mighty one, the powerful one. But he also says, so that he, and we see that because he brought them out of the land of Egypt by, it says, a strong and mighty hand. Imagine, I mean, think of the power, think of how God changed the tables of Israel and Egypt. Who would have thought that as slaves they would one day be leaving not only with their freedom but with riches plundered from the Egyptian people? That's turning the tables. That's a strong and mighty hand. Who would have thought that Christians following Jesus in the Roman Empire in the first century that were being slaughtered would one day take over the Roman Empire? Nobody. But God works through a strong and powerful hand. But God is also a God of patience. He's a God of goodness and power, but he's also a God of patience. I mean, for goodness sakes, there were ten plagues. Wouldn't one or two have been enough? Why was there ten? I think they were, for many other reasons maybe, but at least God was being patient, was giving opportunity. God is a patient God. He was working on anyone who might be willing to grow and learn and be the good people that they ought to be. Romans 2 and verse 4, Paul said, Do not discount the goodness and patience of God that leads to repentance. God is a patient God. God is also relational, is what we've learned, I think, from this story. He wants a relationship with his people. He said, I'm the God of your fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You will be my people, and I will be your God. But God is also a gentleman, we might say, or a God of courtesy, if you will. He doesn't go where he's not wanted. And so if you continually say no to God, leave me alone, I don't want anything to have to do with you, God will honor your request, at least for a time. He will honor the freedom of your choice or your request. But you know, this world is a scary place if you have to go it alone. There's evil. There's injustice. 
There's slavery. There's racism. And as the, uh, uh, let's see, the song goes, sweet dreams are made for these. I've traveled the world and the seven seas. Everybody's looking for something. Some of them want to use you. Some of them want to abuse you. Or some of them want to be abused by you. Okay, that is my audition for the praise team. But I was hoping you'd join in. But you know, it's the truth. Some people do want to abuse you, don't they? Some people want to use you. It's a scary place to go in this world alone. But this strong and powerful and good God who is concerned about you and wants to be known by you and have a relationship with you says, he says in Exodus 6 and 3, not only am I a powerful God, but I want to tell you my name, Yahweh, or however it's pronounced. I am the God that can be known. Even more than that, he says, I want to bind myself to you in a covenant relationship. That's the last two points I want to make about God. God is covenantal. God will establish a covenant relationship with you. What is a covenant? It's a binding relationship. We have a God, a Father, who will bind himself to you and be your God, and you can be his people. You can be, he can be your father, and you can be his son and your, and his daughter. And even if you forget about him, he will not forget about you because God is faithful he's faithful to his covenant and to his people he wants to be known he wants to have a relationship but how do you really know somebody well you can tell them your name but you know we quickly forget names don't we I've learned that if I don't continually interact with you if I don't continually do something to you and talk to you and hear your story, I'm, uh, you know, it's hard for me to even remember your name. So that's how we have a relationship with God. We don't, it's not just important that we know his name or know who he is or know something about him. He wants to enter into a relationship with us. He wants to walk through life with us and be involved in what we're involved in. You see, God is like that. He wants us to invite him into what we're doing. And he wants to be involved in your situation. So that's why in small groups, sometimes we share our highs and lows, but what God is doing in our life. It's to remind us that we need to be inviting God into our situation. Invite him into what we're doing. Because... A knowledge or a relationship of God can be lost in one or two generations. That's what happened to the children of Israel. In a few generations, they had kind of forgotten who God was and forgot to keep him active and involved in their life. Psalm 78 says, Tell it to the generations to come of the wondrous deeds of the Lord, so that they should put their confidence in God and not forget any of his wonderful works. Well, the Passover feast 
is kind of like the Lord's Supper. You see, it's an object lesson. It's something that we see. Sign, that's what signs are. Sign, you remember he said, this will be a sign for you. A sign is something that we see, something that tells us something, something that points the way. He calls it a rite and a ritual. That's a religious service, a ritual act. But it helps us do something. It helps us get involved in something. We're doing something with our hands and with our feet. We're eating something. We're smelling something. We're, we're experiencing it. It's an object lesson. That's what a memorial is. He used that term too. A memorial reminds us. It puts something before our mind. And they celebrated a feast. And we celebrate the feast as, as a celebration, the Lord's Passover or the Lord's Supper. And in it, we feast. We're joyful. It tells us who we are, where we came from, where we're going. And it helps us know why we have the joy of the Lord. And last of all, it's because he said, so that the law of the Lord will be in your mouth. So that we can tell it to the next generation, to our children, to our children's children, that this is what the Lord has done for me. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed for us to redeem us. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Well, that's the Passover. And now it brings us to the Lord's Supper, which is where we celebrate our Passover lamb in Jesus Christ.